Well, good morning to you once again. I'd like you to open the Word of God with me to 1 Timothy and we'll continue in our series. And we'll be looking at just three verses this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 18 to 20. And if you have your Bibles or your reading devices, please follow with me. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. May God add a blessing to his precious word, which alone is powerful, as used by his Holy Spirit in our lives. Being involved in boats and sailing to some extent in my earlier year, uh, which our whole family was. I being the father of our family and and um, following in the footsteps of my dad, we soon learned that there were pieces of equipment that were needed on board that was vital for the safety of the vessel and for the safety of those on board. And in those days, before a whole lot of digital data came available, one of the most necessary pieces of equipment on any seagoing vessel is navigation charts of the area that you're sailing in. And by the way, even with all our technology, you still need the hard copies of navigation charts. Matter of fact, if you sink a vessel and it is found that you never had a navigation charts, you're liable. And so these charts detail not only the depth and the type of seabed beneath that you are sailing, but they pinpoint submerged reefs and protruding rocks and even the ebb and flow and the size of different tides. They kind of tell you everything about where you're sailing, right down to the finest detail. All of this vital information is necessary when you are sailing and any wise sailor would have this on board who understands the danger and hazards that are part of any sea journey but as you will know and I learned from time to time you see and hear of vessels where their captain or their skipper whatever you like to call him obviously did not heed or did not read accurately the warnings on the navigation charts. After my dad died, we sold his 11-metre yacht, Shalomai. That's what she was called. We sold it to two keen sailors ready to sail the coast of New Zealand and beyond. But within six months of their purchase, sad news came to us how these keen sailors 
failed to navigate a well-known passage, but dangerous passage through some islands off the coast of New Zealand. They struck a submerged reef and Shalomai was wrecked and lay half sunk on the shallow rocks below. These men failed, obviously, to heed the charts. Their over-familiarity of the sea passage that they were sailing in, it brought about their demise. And sadly, that beautiful craft, once a witness of detailed and careful craftsmanship, and a vessel that sailed the seas like she was designed to do, now lay wrecked and displayed herself as a tragedy that could have been avoided. But as we know, you could spend a lifetime, and some of us here could spend a lifetime discussing maritime tragedies that could have been avoided, right? One comes to our mind, Titanic. It could have been avoided. But did you know, not all shipwrecks happen at sea. Actually, the most and the most tragic of all shipwrecks happen on dry ground. And this is what our text speaks of. It speaks of spiritual shipwreck that can be avoided. In fact, it even records the name of two men in the early church that experienced such a shipwreck. Their names were Hymenius and Alexander. Now, most of us here will never experience a maritime shipwreck. But folks, the potential for personal spiritual shipwreck lurks in the lives of every single one of us. And because of this reality, becoming a spiritual shipwreck is far more disastrous than a shipwreck, I might say, on the high seas. In our text today, we see something of what a spiritual shipwreck means and how to avoid such a tragedy. This text, can I say, is like a navigational chart for each one of us here. For our passage through life as those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And so with God's help, what I want to do this morning is to help you avoid the potential danger of becoming a spiritual shipwreck just as Paul warned Timothy to warn the saints at Ephesus. And so what I wish to do is to keep the main thing the main thing by, by first focusing on, on the negative shipwreck outcome before finishing on more positive note, the remedies to avoid that. So first, let us look at the reality and the reasons of spiritual shipwreck. And we see this in the second part of verse 19. And this part of the verse reads like this, which some of you have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. You see that? We see in verse 20 that Paul calls out two men by name who suffered the spiritual shipwreck, Hymenius and Alexander. Now, we don't know too much about what these men got up to, but it is indicated that Hymenius began to teach false doctrine as we read in 2 Timothy, the next letter, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. 
which says he began to teach false doctrine. Now, Alexander, we're not too sure who this guy was. It may have been, it may have been the same Alexander that is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.14 who did much harm to the Apostle Paul, the coppersmith. But we can't guarantee that because Alexander was evidently a very common name in that day and age. Whatever the case, these men, it seems, were those who once ran well spiritually, but now they were blights on the true Christian faith. The very truth ballast, I'm using some maritime language here, the very truth ballast of the Christian faith, the anchor of sound doctrine that they once held to with personal faith and conviction, they had jettisoned and spiritually drifted, can I say, and became shipwrecks and of no use to God at all. That's a sad case, right? Now, folks, I'm sure we can all think of someone or some family who once walked well with the Lord, professed to know him as Savior and Lord, and sadly they have become spiritual shipwrecks. I'm positive this is not foreign to you. You know of this actually happening. This is a reality. It is a reality. And it's not only, I might say, celebrity pastors, and we know a few of them over the years who have fallen greatly through immorality, through financial vices, etc., etc. It's not only these guys that become spiritual shipwrecks. You see, folks, we're all in Satan's firing line. He loves to see Christians wrecked. He can't take away our salvation, but he can ruin and wreck our testimony as witnesses to the Lord. The spiritual reality just doesn't happen to the other guy. It can happen to you and me, and none of us are immune from potential spiritual shipwreck. You see, Paul warned the Corinthians... He warned them in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 and he says, Therefore he he who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So let's not brush off this reality. It can happen to anyone. And of course it's not only a reality but to suffer spiritual shipwreck it has a cause, right? Some of us in our Bible study love looking at the cause and effects. Well, shipwreck is the effect, but what's the cause behind this? What's the reason? And Paul tells us the reason that these two men suffered shipwreck was because they what? They rejected the faith. They rejected the faith. And here in our text, he speaks that what this speaks of, this word reject, it it means to thrust or push away, to drive away, to refuse. That's what that word in the Greek means. And here in our text it speaks of a a deliberate turning away from truth to error. And it seems that Hymenius deliberately rejected, he pushed away and refused the true teaching of the faith. That is, he rejected the body of truth that was once handed down to the saints in the scriptures by the apostles and in its place he embraced 
false doctrine. And not only that, he began to teach it. Alexander, in some way, also refused foundational apostolic doctrine and suffered shipwreck while drifting on his sea of error. Whatever the case, both these men wound up where they were because they pushed, they thrust away truth and they turned to error. You see, folks, there is never a vacuum. We need to understand that. There is never a vacuum when it comes to what we believe and what we hold to. You cannot kind of be, this is what's ridiculous, cannot be agnostic. I don't believe this, I don't believe that. I'm just sort of sitting on a fence. No, no, you don't sit on a fence when it comes to truth. You either believe it or you don't. You either accept it or you reject it. Even indifference and apathy about God's truth, you know what that's doing? It's thrusting it away in favor of error which sets us drifting towards spiritual shipwreck. We may think that we can hold it in balance, but we cannot. It's either one or the other. And that's why believers, those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, must at all times be what? They must at all times be reading and studying what? The navigational chart of the Scriptures. Dare I say it, if we think we can just go from one weekend to the next without studying the navigational charts in our journey in life, we will hit reeves that will damage us. And so if we are not studying the scriptures, whether that be because of indifference, apathy, busyness, or for any reason at all, if we fail to study and heed the navigation chart that God has given us, we are rejecting, we're pushing away God's truth in favor of error. It's as simple as that and plain as that. And you know what? That will only ever end in tragedy and spiritual shipwreck where your usefulness of God will be zero. And just in case you think you've got it all under control, because sometimes we think we do have it all under control, right? You know, we can kind of walk as close to the edge as possible, as it were. Sometimes we think we know when to stop and when to put the anchor down to, to slow our spiritual drifting, so to speak. We need to understand that the move from truth to error is never made in an instant. For example, no one wakes up one morning and says, I think today I'll begin spiritually drifting. I think today will be a day when I push God's truth aside and, and cut my own erroneous path in life. No one ever wakes up and kind of says that. It does not happen like that. It's far more subtle we begin drifting towards spiritual shipwreck when sin creeps in, when the calm and the good times of life, they dull our senses, when we allow sin to go unchallenged in our lives. We spiritually drift toward disaster when we excuse and even justify our sinfulness and blatant disobedience to the Word of God. The road to spiritual shipwreck is subtle and most often very slow. But before long, before long, we're swallowed up. Some hidden reef grips us and holds us and we tragically 
become spiritually wrecked vessels. What a tragedy. You know, there are many reasons, folks, behind such spiritual tragedy. But whatever the reason, they all add up to one common denominator. We allow ourselves to drift from our spiritual moorings, so to speak. The anchor of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes too hard to follow. He becomes too hard to, 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 to be our leader and our master. So we substitute our obedience to him with apathy and with indifference and with worldly thinking. And that will soon be followed with sinful action every time. Or it may be like an overladen ship. Or a sailing ship that has no wind in its sails. What happens? We flounder. We drift. We can lose momentum in life, in our spiritual walk. Our work, our schedules, our financial commitments, they're just too heavy. They're weighing upon us. They are more important than anything else. Especially heeding the navigational chart of Scripture. That just becomes overburdensome. And hence it becomes secondary. Spiritual shipwreck, folks, is a reality. And every tragic case will have a reason. And because of this, this will be a great time as you sit there in your seats to closely look at your own life and to see if we are on course, spiritually speaking. What are you tolerating in your life that needs to go? That's a good question. Where have you slacked up where you need to be more diligent? What have you ceased to do that you need to be doing? What subtle changes have taken place in your life that have brought about indifference and, and measures of apathy and even coldness in your heart of love toward the Lord? See, these things can and will lead to spiritual shipwreck if they're not dealt with immediately. This brings us to our second point. Spiritual shipwrecks bear dire consequences. We see this in verse 20. And Paul uses a strong term here in that these two men were, it says, handed over to Satan. You notice that? And this was the most extreme disciplinary measure available to the church for people who went away from the Lord for whatever reason. In effect, they were excommunicated. We, you know what that word means. They were cut off. They were sent away from. They were excommunicated from the protective umbrella of the church and they were delivered to Satan's hand, the world, and out of the protection of the church and the Lord's people. And they were handed over to Satan, as it were, to teach them humility and love for God and obedience to his word. That's what excommunication is for. And so this is what Paul, by the way, on another occasion, commanded the Corinthian believers to do with a guilty member in their congregation in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, who was caught up in a, in a terrible, immoral sin. And as then, so now, the goal of any discipline, it's not to punish the offending believer, but to restore such a one, right? Many churches get this wrong. Many people get this wrong. It's to restore the offending believer. 
And so Paul's desire here, it was not to get rid of these men. But what was it for? The text tells us it was to what? So that they might be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, so that they might be taught, they were pushed out of the assembly, they were told to, uh, that not to have anything to do with the believers and believers not to have anything to do with them. They were to be cut off so that these men might be taught not to slander God by misrepresenting his truth. Sometimes ministering to people involves the unpleasant task of confrontation. On rare occasions, and as a last resort, it may have to go before the church and result in formal excommunication with prayer and with the aim of restoration. And that is never pleasant, especially for someone with a timid personality like Timothy had. It was super difficult. But it must be done if people are going to grow in Christ and if the body of Christ is going to reflect God's holiness and his love. Otherwise, the place becomes a sham and no one knows what is what and uh, we're just dictated to by people's personality. But what we all need to understand here is, again, that no one sins in a vacuum. Our sins, in other words, our sins have consequences. And as Galatians 6 and 9 tells us, what we sow, we shall reap. And so when a believer allows his or her life to become shipwrecked by sin, there will be terrible consequences to pay for that. There's no getting away from that. We cannot sit on the fence and just think, okay. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 6 to 12, says, assured them that discipline, actually, he said, discipline is guaranteed. Discipline is guaranteed. And even sickness and death is possibly one of the consequences. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11 and 30. He said, some are sick and some even sleep among you. That sleep there has the idea of passing away. So God can judge his people, discipline his people with such things if he so wishes. To protect his people from being infected with sin and to keep the testimony of the local assembly pure and holy. And besides that, the loss of one's testimony, one's influence and one's usefulness is a tragedy beyond description when we are spiritual shipwrecked. This was Paul's motivating fear, by the way. As stated in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, this is what he says, but I discipline, there's the word again, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So rather than being disciplined by the Lord, Paul being walking and ministering in the fear of God, chose rightly to discipline himself. And what he means by that, he doesn't mean by flagellation, by beating himself like you'll see some Catholic folks do or whatever. No, 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 he disciplined himself. He said no even when it was legitimate for him to do so. 
He looked to the glory of God. He said, will that honor and glorify God? And if he believed and felt that it wouldn't, he didn't go there. He disciplined himself. And so he got up early and he read the scriptures. He went to the prayer meetings and he made sure that his time was organized, even when it was uncomfortable, in order to honor the Lord. He disciplined himself. He made sure that the family that he, he was in read the scriptures. I'm using him as an example. This is what discipline is. He made sure that he wasn't sluggard and lied in bed all day. He got up and he got a job and he went to work. This is discipline. That's hard. But Paul disciplined his body and kept it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, he wanted to be a good, honorable witness to the Lord. And he wasn't going to let anything that he had control over get in the way of that. And I might say, this should be our fear as well too, right? It should be our fear that we're not disqualified because we're all ministers to the Lord. Every single believer here is, is a minister unto the Lord. In addition to that, those believers who are spiritually shipwrecked, they will lose out. Did you know that? Oh, yes, they're going to lose out. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 talks about the judgment seat of Christ when all the believers will stand before him. And those who are spiritually shipwrecked where their witness has been ruined by an undisciplined life and by sin and who lay wrecked will suffer loss. Loss of reward and glory. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's what the Scripture tells me. And so all this means we should be personally disciplining ourselves in order to avoid this spiritual tragedy. And when needs be, or if needs be, the church also must obey the disciplinary measures that are advocated for cleansing the Lord's church in Matthew 18 that Jesus spoke of there. And this is exactly what is being practiced here and promoted by Paul. It was also advocated by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.14 when he said this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Same idea. My dear people, when we treat sin lightly and indifferently and push back the truth of God, it will only ever be to our spiritual peril. There will always be consequences. We need to ask ourselves, is my present spiritual condition really worth what it is and what it will cost me? Is it really worth that? In other words, is my spiritual present condition such that I cannot pray as I should be praying? Is my present spiritual condition such that I have little or no spiritual influence on my family, my friends, or my work colleagues? Is my spiritual present condition really worth the immense spiritual cost of tragedy in my own life and in the lives of others looking on? Is it worth it? Is it really, really worth it? I hope your answer to those questions are, of course not. And that you deal immediately to avoid another spiritual shipwreck tragedy. And praise the Lord, folks. There is a remedy to avoid this tragedy in our lives. There is. This brings us to our third point. 
avoiding the tragedy of spiritual shipwreck. We see this in verses 18 to the beginning of verse 19. What we have here in verse 18 and 19 is what I call the details of our navigational chart so that we can recover, or better still, avoid spiritual shipwreck. The first point on the chart is obedience and duty. They kind of go hand in hand. Paul tells Timothy here that he is giving him what, or entrusting him a command to obey. You see that? Now this command word here carries with it the idea of a military command given to soldiers who are all geared up and prepared for battle. That's what the weight of this word is. It's a military word. In other words, this was not an option. You join the forces and the commander and the chief or the general makes an order. You just say, well, I don't feel like it today. I want to sleep in. You know what will happen. In other words, this was not up for discussion. It was to be obeyed. It also has the idea of, of a superior issuing commands to a subordinate, like a general to a sergeant, can we say. That's what this one word carries with it. The whole idea. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's telling Timothy that he had a responsibility to obey and that he was duty-bound to God to serve and continue to serve in the church at Ephesus. Because you remember, Timothy was going through some tough time here. And Timothy was on the verge of, oh, well, this is too hard. I'm going to give up. I'm going to go and find another church maybe somewhere else where it's a bit easier. So Paul says, no, you've got to obey the command. You've got to obey, and you are duty-bound to serve the Lord here. Now, folks, obedience and serving out out of a sense of duty is sadly all too foreign in the church today, dare I say. It's like a missing ingredient in many of our lives. We live in a day where me comes first, self-indulgence, is king where my opinion my idea is king and we love to talk about freedom and success and joy and peace but very little about obedience and duty have you noticed that too often the church is treated like a local cozy club that requires nothing more than your attendance when it suits it's all optional you see The idea of obedience and duty to God in the church today, I'll say it again, is sadly lacking. Now, dear people, the first vital point on our navigational charts to avoid spiritual shipwreck is obedience to the commands of God. Obedience to the commands of God. Why? Because our Lord is our Lord. Or is He not? He's our master and commander, is He not? He's our general and chief of all chiefs, is he not? And so we are duty-bound to obey his commands and to serve him and his church in whatever way he providentially arranges for us. James tells us our mandate to obey God's word, and you know this verse well in verse James 1.22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves so people who just sit and hear the word and don't take any notice of it are delusional 
They're living in la-la land when it comes to God's reckoning and that's what we want to line ourselves up with, right? Obedience proves that we love the Lord. John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Obedience and duty is right here on the chart, folks. And and any drifting away from that or, or, or any casualness towards it brings us closer to spiritual tragedy of being shipwrecked. Secondly, fulfilling the divine tasks. Paul reminds Timothy of the prophecies. You see that word there? The prophecies that have been issued uh, concerning his life. And these prophecies, what on earth is he talking about here? It's, it's obviously that there, when he was called into the ministry, and we have an idea of this in, the, um, in chapter 4 and verse 14 uh, of, the, of this letter, where it says, Paul says again, Do not neglect the spiritual gifts within you, which were bestowed on you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. So this has to do with Timothy's, can you say, his um, commencement service, as it were, where he, he, he he was commended to the ministry, and this is what happened. In other words, Timothy's divine calling, his task in the ministry, it was confirmed, it was affirmed. By what? By special prophecies concerning his ministry. And that's what used to happen in this early New Testament period. There were prophets and even prophetesses that were kind of moving around, and you can read of them in the book of Acts, and they had a word direct from God about situations, and in this case about Timothy and his future ministry. And so his, his work and task at Ephesus was affirmed and confirmed by prophecies, direct revelation from God. Now today we don't give that. The calling into the ministry is based on personal desire. And how do I know that? You go down to chapter 3, verse 1. You see there uh, where it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So we have this idea of personal desire rather than outside revelation. And the confirmation of our calling is not through prophecies that Timothy had, but it's been given by the church. The church, the local church, affirms and confirms the calling of one into the ministry. Whether it be a pastor or whether it be a leader of worship or whatever, whatever goes on. The church affirms that and confirms that. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying this. He said, Timothy, you cannot give up. You dare not forget and neglect how your calling into the ministry was confirmed. That's what he's saying here. Folks, you and I have been the object of divine prophecies as well. Do you know that? Yeah. We have been told, have we not, that we are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8 verse 37. That's a word from God concerning all his children. We are more than conquerors. We have been told that we can constantly walk in victory. 1 Corinthians 15 and 57. So that means... No matter how much woeful stuff happens in this life, we can plow on through life walking in victory. Amen? 
That's a prophecy. So really, that should be a shake-up for anyone who is constantly downcast and woeful about life in general. We've been told that our faith in the Lord is our key to overcoming everything in life. We see that in 1 John 5 and 4. And so just as this command of, of fulfilling his divine task it was in, that was entrusted to Timothy, we too have been given the wherewithal to fulfill divine missions that God has given to each one of us. Our duty to God and the church and our fellow man and ourselves is not to hold back, not to be indifferent, not to sit on the fence, but to go all out in the power of Jesus Christ and to fulfill our ministry. One commentator I read once said that, you know, the local church is a little bit like, I'm going to sort of twist it around, I'll say a rugby game. You could say AFL because you know how many players in there. And on a rugby game, you've got 15 men in each team, 30 men running around chasing a bit of leather who desperately need a rest. Okay? But you've got thousands of others looking on who definitely need some exercise. <laughs> Sad to say, that's a little bit what the church is like. So each of us have been called, we have an opportunity to serve. And we must not neglect that. We're part of the team, right? And we have a duty to do and we are to obey the Lord's command to fulfill the ministry that he has given us. Our full potential as believers is only realized as we obediently fulfill our God-given task, which is, by the way, our God-given duty. And anything short of that, you know what it's going to lead to? Spiritual shipwreck. Engaging in battle. In other words, Timothy Watt here is reminded that he's been enlisted, or not been enlisted in the Lord's army to relax and enjoy life to the max and walk around and, and, and disappear when the going gets tough. No, no. He's reminded here that the Christian is... Christian's life is a battleground. It's tough. You see, from the moment the believer comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he or she is in the middle of a spiritual conflict. Of a spiritual conflict. Our enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil are, are like those dangerous submerged reefs that bring spiritual tragedy to any floundering and unarmed, unprepared believer. That's what they are. You see, folks, we're not only called to be defensive, but to go on the offensive in our Christian walk. Because what does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, you fight the good fight. He doesn't only tell him to put his armor on. Yeah, he tell, Paul says that in Ephesians 5, put the whole armor of God on. But here he says, go on the offensive, fight the good fight. You see, this fight is something interesting. It's good, it's noble, it's excellent. It's an excellent battle actually to be engaged in. It's a good fight, right? That's what God's Word says. You see, when we do battle with our spiritual enemy, you know what? We're on the Lord's side. We're on the Lord's side, battling out against Satan himself. Which side are you on? I know which side I want to be on. What could be better than to live or die as valiant soldiers of the cross? What could be better than that? 
We sing that song until the battle's done and the victory's won. My Lord will carry you through. Amen. This is our duty to God and the church. And we can win this spiritual battle if we take on the spiritual resources that provided for us by our Heavenly Father. And we read that, by the way, in Ephesians 6. I think I said 5 before. We need to fight the good fight to avoid spiritual shipwreck. And can I ask you, are you earnestly contending? There's the word fighting. Are you earnestly contending for the faith? As Jude 3 reminds us of. And then hold fast to the faith. Timothy here is commanded with keeping the faith. You see that beginning of verse 19? Beginning of verse 19? This word means to lay hold of something, to, to own or possess for oneself. And so Paul is telling Timothy to stand in and, and for the truth at all cost. And the faith is the revealed truth of the gospel as in the scriptures. In other words, to avoid spiritual shipwreck, remain loyal to the objective truth of God's word. And folks, nothing has changed. This applies to you and me today. We are not to be enticed or to have our senses dulled by cultural norms when they go against the truth of God's word. We are not to be moved or swayed by the clever rhetoric, no matter how scientific or learned these voices might be. We're not to be moved or swayed by that. We're to get a good grip of the word of God and to fight against error, stand against error, defend the truth of God. So many churches today, in the plural, are shipwrecked because they have yielded to error and moved away from the faith that was once handed down to the saints, sad to say. So many churches, and you know them as well, are wrecked, spiritual shipwrecked, giving no testimony of the Lord's saving grace through Jesus Christ. May it never be that our subjective feelings about the Scripture or our opinions about what Scripture means replace the power of God's objective truth. You know, that's a reef waiting to ruin you. Have a good conscience. That's the next one. Paul reminds Timothy of the value of a good conscience. Notice what kind of conscience it is. It's a good conscience, right? A good conscience is only ever the result of, you know what? A life of purity. This is where the believer lives a life that is above reproach. We often use that term. People often get this back to front, by the way. They get it all wrong. And some Christians do too. They think that their conscience is what, they believe that their conscience is what tells them what is right and wrong. That's what the world thinks. The world will acknowledge a conscience. And they say, this is what tells me what is right and what is wrong. And can I say, wrong. It's only the scripture that tells us right and wrong. I wonder if we got that. It's only the scripture that tells us what's right and wrong. Your conscience then is fed truth about right and wrong from God's word. And then as you live your life, anything that is good or bad, your divinely fed conscience will affirm it or deny it. That's what happens. That's how your conscience works. Yet sadly, Christians, and I've heard to myself speak of 
and defending their actions often. Well, I feel okay about it and um, I'm perfectly at peace with what I'm doing. And, um, and even when it's about something that is blatantly against God's truth. So what they're doing is allowing their ideas and their opinion and their own man-made ideas be the authority over Scripture. They rely on a seared or a dulled, infected conscience to give them direction. Your conscience, your feeling is only good, you know, it's only as good as it is saturated in the Word of God. And so we're all to have a good conscience, which means we have to have an obedient heart that by faith does what God says is right. You know, as pain to the body, no doubt this is what Jared was feeling recently, as pain to the body warns us that something is physically wrong, a good conscience produces guilt that warns us of a danger to the soul. Folks, we need to have and maintain a good conscience in order to avoid spiritual shipwreck. And we do that by feeding on the truth of God's word. And you know what? God's truth will only ever produce in us that which is good. This is what it means. Fight the good fight in order to avoid spiritual shipwreck. In conclusion, I started talking about my dad's yacht. I'll kind of mention him that yacht now. My dad's yacht was shipwrecked because her captain never heeded the navigation charts. What will be said of your life in the future? Or maybe even now? Will others be able to quote the words of Paul in 2 Timothy verse 4-7 four, four, about you and about me? And be able to say, here was a man, here was a woman who fought a good fight and finished the course and kept the faith. Will they be able to say that about you and myself? May it never be that your life is displayed as a memorial of one who became a tragic spiritual shipwreck simply because you ignored the navigation chart of Scripture. May that never be. If any of you were here want to help with this, and you may be still struggling in some area, after the service, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to go into my office. If you want help with this, come and see me. Come in that door, close the door behind you, and we can talk about whatever issue you have in mind. And we can pray about that. Shall we stand? I'm going to close now with a benediction. This is from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word 
we give thanks in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.